we as a church family are made up of a lot of different career paths. Within our church, we have engineers, electrical line workers, students, homemakers, financial advisors, pilots, business owners, military officers, store managers, government employees, police officers, teachers, factory workers, realtors, salesmen, artists, medical workers, firefighters, administrative office employees, and the list goes on and on and on. Many of you spend 40 to 50 to 60 hours of your week each week doing these things, working. So it's massively important for the majority of our church to know the relationship of Jesus and how their relationship with Jesus works with their relationship with work. How does Jesus and work, how does Jesus and work go together? That's massively important for your 40 to 50 to 60 hours per week. There needs to be a biblical understanding of the value of work, a a biblical conviction of why we work, and a biblical clarity of how we are to work. So my prayer is that the text we are covering today and others like it would inform those 40 to 50 to 60 hours of your workplace hours. But the text we are reading and talking about today first starts discussing slaves and masters. So we have to do some work to understand what is and is not being said in this text as we dive into understanding current applications of the text. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. If you'll remember, we've talked about this a lot. The first three chapters of Ephesians are lots of doctrine, who we are in Christ. And the last three chapters are, are that doctrine lived out. It's a practice of the doctrine. That's where we find ourselves today. How do we practically live out this doctrine? We'll look a lot today at the workplace. but We've got some work to do before we get there in understanding this text. Verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 6. This is God's word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would illumine and enlighten this text. That it would have massive implications and changes in the way we live out our 40 to 50 to 60 hours of each and every week. Lord, guard my mouth from error and use this by your Spirit. We invite your Spirit to work in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump into the workplace idea, we need to understand what the ancient Near Eastern culture 
is even talking about in this text with masters and slaves. So point number one is this, a cultural context explaining slavery in New Testament times. Now, the temptation in reading about slavery in the Bible is to import the Atlantic slave trade and the early American form of slavery into this text, but that is far from what is being addressed by the Apostle Paul. This is not talking about slavery based on skin color. It's not talking about slavery based on people being stolen from one land and shipped off to another land. Sure, slavery could be horrible in biblical days, but we have to understand that Paul's address, what Paul's addressing in order to get the modern implications and application. So let's dive into this idea of slavery from 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. What is it? How did it work? What, uh, how was it similar and different from the American slave trade or the Atlantic slave trade? So here we go. In the Roman Empire at this time, there were around 60 million slaves. A third of the population of any major city, including Ephesus, were slaves. A third of the population. So everyone had connections to slaves. You either were a slave, you had slaves, you were in a home with slaves, you were a former slave called a freedman, or you didn't have slaves because you were poor and you probably wanted them. Like, that's kind of the gamut of what's going on in the ancient Near East that this is referring to. Interestingly, prior to this time when this is written, in the days of Aristotle and the early Roman Empire, slavery was really, really bad. Basically like what we assume slavery is because we know our Atlantic slave trade history. The horrors of slavery, people being subjected cruelly, used as tools rather than humans. There's a famous quote by Aristotle where he talks about slaves as, as living tools to be used and abused and thrown out at will. So you Aristotle fans out there, he's got some repentance to do. But by the time Jesus is born, there'd actually been some slave reform. A slave, slave uprisings like Spartacus and others made people aware of the need for reform. And so by the time of Christ, and then later Paul when he's writing this, a slave under Roman law could generally count on being set free. So 50% of slaves were free by the age of 30 years old. Slaves also had their own slaves. So those slaves were, were used by the first slaves, that's a little confusing, to then buy their freedom. Kent Hughes states it this way, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of obtaining Roman citizenship and gaining an entrance into society. And you may be like, well, great, Roman citizenship. Okay, so you get to be a Roman citizen. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's some really important things. I don't even have time for all the details of that, but like there are certain taxes you don't have to pay if you're a Roman citizen. There's land and property rights you gain if you're a Roman citizen. There are legal rights in the court system that you have if you're a Roman citizen, but not if you're not a Roman citizen. We even see Paul exercise that later in the New Testament. So getting Roman citizenship is massive. A slave at this time could have a family. You wouldn't be separated from your family. You could have an occupation. You could be a janitor. You could be a teacher. You could be a doctor. So this is not merely being a slave. So as we look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, we have to make sure that we are comparing apple, apples to apples and not apples to oranges. 
This slavery master discussion in Ephesians chapter 6 and the Atlantic slave trade are not the same. It's not even close to talking about the same thing. It's like the difference between car accidents of a fender bender and a head-on collision where both cars are totaled. They're both bad. I would just say both of them are not the greatest thing in the world, but the fender bender is way different than the massive auto accident. And before we shift to the text, we must acknowledge, though, that in the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s and 1900s in our country, many people ripped Ephesians 6 and other passages like it from the original context to justify slavery and racism and prejudice. Friends, abuses of Scripture often lead to abuses of people. And it's horrible and sinful and unjust and completely ignores the rest of the book of Ephesians and the New Testament. So that's what we're not talking about. And we've got to understand the context or the contextual lens that we put on is massively important when we come to the Bible. We want to know what the Bible is saying, not importing anything else. Point number two, scriptural teaching about the slave-master relationship. So in the context of Ephesians, what is Paul talking about? Well, Paul's talking about the household. So first, he first addresses, you go up in Ephesians 5, he addresses husbands and wives and that relationship in the household. Then he, he addresses parents and children and that relationship in the household. And now the next logical thing, the next thing he addresses is the slave-master relationship. It was the norm. But notice some significant things Paul speaks of. First, Paul treats and speaks to slaves as people, as persons, with dignity and respect not pieces of property, not chattel. Secondly, Paul talks them about them and to them as brothers and sisters in Christ, which really is the foundation of this teaching in Ephesians chapter 6. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul speaks to the Ephesian church, which included slaves sitting there in the church, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So, so there's this unity of everybody and members of the household of God. There's a bigger household that you're a part of, a bigger dynamic going on of what God has done and what Christ has purchased. So slaves have personhood it's very different than the Atlantic slave trade. But notice in this text that there's a tension. When you read the text of verses 6 through 9, you find that Paul is clearly speaking to believers who are free in Christ, and yet they still, have, they still are slaves to a human master. They're free in Christ, yet they're slaves to a human master. So, so we learn then that freedom in Christ does not somehow make authority structures obsolete, right? That it doesn't just break down authority structures. So how should the slaves act? What is the disposition they should have toward their master? How should masters who are believers treat brothers and sisters in Christ that are slaves? 
Let me give you the high level, then we're going to get in the details in a second. At a high level understanding, as we look at this text, commentators note that there are four main ways that, that slaves are to treat their master. They're to be respectful, to be sincere, they're to be diligent, and they're to be pleasant. Respectful, sincere, diligent, and pleasant. We'll see this as we go and dive deeper. But note that this is not some like half-hearted respect or fake sincerity or disgruntled diligence or insincere pleasantness. No, the key to this text is the phrase, as you would Christ. For you to understand this, it's, it's those words, as you would Christ. I just imagine like someone who is a worker here, somebody who, who works with your hands, and you're like looking down at whatever labor you're, you're doing, and you have like a tattoo right here, as you would Christ. Like a reminder, maybe you work on the computer, and on the com- top of the computer it says, as you would Christ. Like all of it is about as you would Christ. That's the key. There is a, a greater master, a greater loyalty, a greater calling that the slave must have in view. It is unto the Lord. But note that this is not just the thinking for the slave. Verse 9 says, Masters, do the same to them. Masters, do the same in that you do your work unto Christ. You, masters, treat your slaves with respect and sincerity and and work diligently and be kind and pleasant. Verse 9 even says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven. Masters, you have a master. You have a Lord. So as we dive into the text in the modern application today, let's just note that everybody has a master. Everybody's a slave blanket. No one is the master of their own fate and the captain of their own soul. That, my friends, is a lie. Everyone's a servant. So let's look at the current applications as we walk through this text. Point number three, and this will be way longer than point one and two. If you guys are like getting excited, getting reservations to leave early, point three is the longest one. So since we're not in the situation of the slave-master relationship in biblical times, we've got to understand how do we take the implications and applications. Well, like I've said, it's, it's the workplace. It's the employee-employer context. And if we take the employee-employer context of our modern life and society, of those 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week, man, this is pretty impactful stuff as you dive into this text. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. What theologians would categorize this as is respect. Obey your master. There's this disposition toward the master, fear and trembling, this respect for the boss. The, the position of the boss and the authority of the boss, not because of everything you love about the boss, but a respect for the position. 1 Timothy 6.1, let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters 
as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So there's this respect, there's this disposition of honoring God. There's this fear and trembling. So here's the fact. Our work is on holy ground because it's unto the Lord. God, God designed this. God created work in the beginning. Work's not something to, to flee from. Work's not some product of the fall. No, Adam was in the garden before sin ever came into the world to work the, the ground. Work was, was a good thing to exercise dominion in God's world. Work is still a good thing to exercise dominion in God's world. So it's not a result of sin. And so we, now, sin affects our work, right? We feel that all the time. We have bosses that aren't reasonable, that I'm like, how in the world am I supposed to respect that guy or girl? Like, it's a real thing. But friends, this is a calling from God. This is an honoring and respecting of God. And let's understand there's no secular, sacred divide. I think that's one of the uh, common twist and turn that's just from the pit of hell. That there's some secular sacred divide. Like, well, this work is like God's work, but this work over here, well, that's just like, bleh. It doesn't really matter. It's just not true, guys. Like, if we view life that way, like, like if, you, if you like cuss at home but don't cuss in this building, like you've got a secular sacred divide. You're two different people. Like, this building's a building. Well, no, it's the church. No, the people are the church. This is a building. It's just a building. We like the building. We're grateful that God gave us this building, but it's a building. The people are the church of God. We have so many secular, sacred divides that, like, we just import into life that we've got to be super careful. So the janitor on the hallway mopping and the missionary on the mission field are equally doing holy work as they do it unto the Lord. And friends, the janitor can be mopping unto the Lord in a way that the missionary is not, depending on the missionary's heart. Like this is all about doing it unto the Lord as you would Christ. Verse 6 then speaks of the sincere, I mean, sorry, verse 5 continues, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. There's a sincerity. We talked about respect, now the sincerity. So this is, is no subtle insubordination. This is sincerity. There's no sticking it to the man. No, this is unto the Lord. The Greek word for sincerity speaks of an undivided heart. An undivided heart, no ulterior motive, no hypocrisy. Why? Because our loyalties to Christ. It's a genuine heart to serve the genuine king and represent him to our boss, to the other employees. It's a sincerity, and it's asking for Christ's strength. Asking for Christ's help when the boss or the company asks us to do something that we really don't feel like doing. We don't understand why we're being asked to do it. And to be, or, or, or they're asking us to be passionate about something we really don't care about. Like, we don't care. And they're like, 
trying to pump you up, and you're like, I don't care, I don't care. You know, just in your heart. In Carl Truman's book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he speaks of the categories of how people think. Just follow me for a second. If you're like, how in the world does this have to do with work? I'll get there, okay? How people think, which then affects how they work. So in the 1700s, we were often called the political self or the political man. People thought of the polis. Anybody know what polis means? City. Good job. Good job. Some of you teachers. Um, The polis. So they would think about the society, the city. What is the good that can be brought by me to the city? That was kind of the the 1700s. Then the 1800s was the religious man or the religious self. People first thought of how things related to God and advanced religion. Then the 1800s into the 1900s, it was the economic self or the economic man. So people would think how uh, their personal and familial economics would, would affect decisions. So the economics were the most important. And then that brings us into our modern era, from the mid-1900s on to now, which is the psychological man or the psychological self. How we evaluate things first comes in how we feel, how we think and perceive ourselves. So this obviously affects our work and our view of work. Let me give you an example that Truman actually gives in the book. If you ask your grandfather or your great-grandfather, who's the, the economic man, how he felt about his job, he would say, I feel fine about my job. It pays the bills. It provides for my wife and kids. He's not looking for personal fulfillment. He's looking for economic stability. He's not looking for personal fulfillment. That's, he's not the psychological man, first feelings-based. No, he's like looking at the bottom line, does this provide? However, in our psychological man era, we sometimes miss the bus on honoring Christ in our work because we're so wrapped up in personal fulfillment. We may really struggle when our job wants us to be passionate about the latest program or plan that we don't care about because we are processing things psychologically where previous generations would say, great, this pays the bills. It provides for my family. I'll move forward or it helps my city or it advances religion. So when we think about sincerity, and this is why I'm going off on this tangent for a second, when we think about sincerity and work, it's speaking of a sincerity to the Lord, not a sincerity to self. A lot of times we just, we co-opt that word sincerity in our modern language, and we're all about sincerity to self. That's not what this is talking about. When it talks about be sincere, it's not talking about being sincere to yourself. It's talking about sincere to the Lord, unto the Lord, as you would Christ. See, many people in our modern era are worried about being inauthentic. But this passage says, work hard and honor God. Have a sincerity to God. And so then sincerity biblically is just wholehearted serving Christ. I can do this. I cannot do this. It's, it's just unto the Lord. 
I can do this occupation. I can do that occupation. I can do this occupation. Unto the Lord's. John Stott has a great quote this way. It'll be on the screen. It says, It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for the teacher to educate children, for the doctor to treat patients, the nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. So whether housewife, teacher, doctor, nurse, solicitor, shop worker, accountant, secretary, in each case, they were serving Jesus Christ. Friends, would you add yourselves there, your occupation, to that list? Do you see your employment as a way of serving Christ? We've talked about respect in this passage and sincerity. The next thing to add is diligence. Verse 6 says this, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So a diligence of work means fleeing eye service and fleeing people pleasing. Diligence is not doing our work in order to impress others or schmooze others or kiss up to others. Diligence is not working hard when the boss is around, but then when the boss isn't around and not watching, we're not doing the same work ethic. Kent Hughes has a funny observation and kind of definition for eye service. He says, if you ever observe a gym class doing push-ups, you understand this verse. You ever seen, like, maybe you've been in that gym class and they're like, down, up, down, up, you know, down, up, one, down, up, two, down, up, three, and then the coach turns their head, and they're like, down, up, down, and everybody's like, when are they looking again? Oh, yep, we've been doing it the whole time. That's what he's saying. So that's eye service. That's people pleasing. Friends, this passage speaks of a work ethic that has consistency and integrity, knowing that we're working for the Lord. And verse 6 even says that we are servants of Christ. I love that. So he's speaking to slaves, and he's basically saying, hey, slaves, you're slaves. Duh. <laughs> like, like, hey, police officer, you're a police officer. Okay, thanks for that info there, Paul. Hey, slaves, you're servants, but you're not servants of who you think you're servants of. It's not your earthly master. Hey, servants, you're servants of Christ. You're servants of Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus, the Christ. Your aim, your focus, your honor is toward Christ. In the midst of work, your honor is toward Christ. And that changes the 40 to 50 to 60 hours. It changes how you... Think about it and look at it. So employees, as you work, are you working as servants of Christ? Do you work with an excellence that honors Christ? Or are you just trying to get by? Or are we trying to improve the workplace, help our employers succeed, and even blessing other employees? 
few years ago, there was a guy named Eric who was at this church. He was a firefighter. He's now a firefighter in England. And Eric took this Ephesians passage and other passages like it very seriously. I remember sitting down with Eric at Starbucks right over here and just him really like taking this to task and like, how do I do this in the fire station? How do I think through this? And really taking time to, to want to think about how to be a good employee, a good firefighter, and honor Christ. So he decided, uh, well, a firefighter, you're on shift with a bunch of guys, so you know, you're cooking together, you're cleaning. He's like, I'm going to go all in on helping. Whether it's cooking or cleaning or whatever needs need to be met, I'm going to go forward in that. And then he went above and beyond. He said, you know what? There's a new manual that needs to be written. Now, that would like that makes me queasy just to even think about writing a work manual. But he went in and started working on this manual to help the fire chief because they needed to update some code stuff. They needed to write some other stuff. And he's like, I'm going to dive in and see how can I be a help. And he wasn't doing it to kiss up. He wasn't doing it to kiss up. He was doing it to honor Christ. He had to aim toward Christ. And you know what? It helped the morale of the entire station. Because he was trying to honor Christ. He was bringing unity and the team together. One employee can do that, can have that effect as the, the gospel living is walked out. Because verse 6 says this, you're doing the will of God from the heart. Friends, this is the will of God. People get wrapped up in, well, what's the will of God for my life? It says it. You serve Christ. Where? I don't know. But wherever it is, it's unto Christ. It's unto your king. Friends, is Christ our highest loyalty and motive in being a good employee? What is our motive? Is our motive Christ or is our motive money or prestige or promotions or accolades. Man, there can be so many different idols that just usurp. We, we start toward Christ, and then we, we take an exit ramp with accolades or prestige or money. Friends, what gets us out of bed and to work? What are the deepest drives and heart motives of our work? For this passage, friends, invites us it invites us to the highest call in whatever career we are in. Work for Christ. Be a servant of Christ. Do the will of God with a sincere heart. Verse 7 and 8 continue this theme. Render service, it says, with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. We've considered that an employee should be respectful, should be sincere, and should be diligent. Commentator Kent Hughes calls this next one a pleasantness. We could say a goodness. Good is emphasized two different times in those two passages. Rendering service with good will as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive back from the Lord. So there's a goodness. So employees seek to do good to others. So there's a higher calling that allows us to do work unto the Lord, whether it's a menial task or, a, or hard labor. I like to summarize it like this. Life is a mission trip. Life is a mission trip. You ever been on a mission trip? 
So I know we just had a group come back from Rancho 3, and you're like digging holes, you're painting, you're playing with orphans, and you are working your tail off. You have sweated, you have labored, and you go to bed like falling into bed or probably climbing into the bunk bed, but like falling and just dead. You're exhausted, but you're revived at the same time. You're exhausted and revived at the same time. Like you're working your tail off, but you're kind of like, that was awesome. I love doing that. Friends, our work can be that way as it's unto the Lord. It can be hard. It can be tiring. It can be monotonous. It can be, like, difficult. But if it's unto the Lord, oh, there's a greater calling. We can work hard, but at the same time, be upheld by the Lord have his energy. That's a life that is on mission in the workplace. Now note that in the context of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are dead in our sin, following Satan, sons of disobedience, but God, being rich in mercy, saves us, and by his grace, he seats us with him in the heavenly places. And then, get this, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his, what? Workmanship. Create in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, God has work for us to do, and he prepared it beforehand. Is that just in the workplace? No, it's outside of that too. But it does include the 40 to 50 to 60 hours per week that God has for us. But note that that work is not just God saying, hey, I saved you and I'll give you life eternally, I'll give you life here, but man, go get them, and I'll I'll just leave you now. No, he's with us now. He prepared things beforehand, and he rewards us. And that while he rewards us, the text says, whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. So let's think about the rewards from God, even in the workplace. He loves to bless and give gifts to those who honor him. Think about different aspects of rewards. There's the reward of a clean conscience. Doing work, honoring the Lord, and being able to go to bed at night knowing you did that well. And you, you laid it out, you left it all out on the field. There's the reward of joyfulness and knowing you honored the king. There's the reward of heavenly blessing. There's the reward of the Father saying, well done. But there's also earthly rewards. A boss showing favor toward hardworking employees? I mean, who doesn't want hardworking employees that have integrity and care and make the workplace better? Like, I don't know too many employers that are like, no, not interested. So it may be promotions and raises. It may be more responsibilities. Friends, God's way of life actually functions best. Like, as we walk forward with integrity and kindness and diligence and respect, and we have an aim not at our boss, but at the Lord, it changes the whole workplace. There's often reward from the Lord in the here and now. We're not doing health, wealth, gospel. I'm not saying you do all this and you for sure. You may get fired. Like, I don't know. And you're like, Mike, what happened? I don't know. But we do know that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. Paul's not just talking, though, 
to slaves in this verse. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, listen, whether he is a slave or free. So Paul's pulling back a bit and talking to the entire Ephesian church. He says, God's the rewarder of all those who seek him. Friends, we're saved by grace, by God. We're empowered with the Holy Spirit to do these good works that were prepared beforehand, and then you get rewarded for doing what God had you do and empowered you to do in the whole time. It's, a, it's baffling. God empowers us to do good works by his grace, and then you get rewarded for that. And I want to hit on one last thing before we shift talking to the masters or the employers. Our loyalty to Christ will sometimes bring moments when we need to change our jobs or even lose our jobs. Our obedience to our earthly masters is a secondary obedience, a secondary loyalty. If they're asking us to sin, we do not sin because our loyalty is to the Lord. If they ask us to go against our consciences, we need to make sure our consciences are biblically informed, and then maybe we have to make an appeal. Or maybe our informed conscience allows us to do whatever it was asked. I know for several folks in our church and then different several friends, they had to work through this with the COVID vaccine. I have friends who studied and prayed and are working through uh, their conscience and got the vaccine. I have other friends that studied and prayed and, and decided, I can't do that with a clear conscience. And so they asked for an exemption. The point is, we have to have a loyalty to Christ. A loyalty to Christ that is greater than our loyalty to our boss, to our work. Verse 9 then shifts the conversation a bit. It says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The master or the employer must realize that he or she is a man or woman under authority. You master, you employer are under a greater authority. Paul says, do the same as I instructed the slaves with respect, sincerity, diligence, doing good, they do the same in the sense that they know they're equally under God's authority. God expects complete loyalty and obedience from the slave toward him and the master toward him. There is no partiality here, for the earthly master is but a slave and a servant of the heavenly master. And we must note the earthly master does really have authority. The earthly master really, like the master here, really does have an authority, but it's a delegated authority. Just like we talked about with the, the parents toward the kids, there's a delegated authority. We, we honor, we represent Christ. The master here is on a delegated authority. So there's no threatening, Paul says. There's no bullying or manipulation. No, we represent Christ. And so if you are an employer, do you misuse your position? Do you model a godly work ethic? Do you respect those who work for you? Do you do good to your employees? Do you reward your employees in a way that God rewards his servants? 
So let's get really practical. Is the way you pay, is that fair? Are the working conditions kind? Are the days off generous? Is it a blessing for your employees to be employed by you? Are you treating them in a way that you would want to be treated? Friends, God is the one who's over all of this. God's the one who our focus, our aim is toward. So this passage gets really practical in those 40 to 50 to 60 hours per week. And it basically asks this question, are we working in our job as we would Christ? Are we working as if Christ is right there? Because he is. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We don't, like, not just with us at home or with us on Sunday gatherings. No, he's with us in those 40 to 50 to 60 hours. He's with us by his Spirit. For those who are followers of Christ, I think this passage asks, asks us to examine and consider our workplace. How are we doing? Are there areas that this passage hits on where we just need to consider some repentance? Like, Lord, I'm not doing that unto you. It may be the eye service thing or people pleasing or just, I don't even think about God in the workplace. Like, there's some repentance to be done if that's the case. Maybe for some of it, it's encouragement. Maybe we look at our working, our work ethic a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, and we see how God has shaped us to live out his mission in the workplace. Whether it's working so we can give a lot away for his glory, or we're treating our employees really good, or hey, we're building up um, the employer, whatever it is that we honor God. And we need to be encouraged and then celebrate those areas. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the way you have worked in growing me. And for those who are not followers of Christ, this passage invites you to a completely different way of working. It invites you to turn from being a slave to sin into being a servant of Christ. It invites you to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and Master. It invites you to a joyful working for a kind and loving and generous king. The kind of boss you've always wanted to serve him and follow him and commit your life to him. Friends, we know that in God's household, we, we aren't working for favor. If we know Christ, we're working from favor. We're in Christ. We're, we're not working for salvation. We're working from salvation. We're in good standing. And so that releases us to honor him in the 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be a people who honor you, who have an eye toward you, that, that Lord, as we think through the workplace, oh, the refrain would be, as you would Christ, as you would Christ. Lord, that we would treat our employees as we would Christ. We would treat our employers as we would Christ. That we would honor you and obey you and seek your kingdom, for you are our king. 
Lord, mold us and shape us and help us. Lord, I pray that you would help those in this room that are in really difficult situations today, that they look at their workplace and it just drains the life out of them. Lord, empower them and give them your heart and your eyes and, and, and your wisdom. God, for those who love the workplace that they're in, encourage them to seek you first, God. Lord, I pray for those who, as we talk about work, they think about the work that they have at home. Maybe they're a stay-at-home mom. Lord, encourage them in the hard work the hardest job of raising kids. Encourage them today equally to do it unto you, to have the aim of Christ. And Lord, let us seek you first. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if there's anything we can pray for you about, we're going to have the hot dog hang out in just a minute, and the hot dogs will be ready soon so you can get those. But um, if, if we can pray for you in any way, specifically about work maybe, we would love to do that. We'll have some folks up front. Let's stand together and we're going to have a benediction from Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what God's Word says to believers. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, let's walk in them this week.